Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast, your initiation into the ways of the square to resurrect the wretch and pee on the all-seeing pyramid of Illuminati enlightenment. And now, here's your host, Mr. Michael Joseph. Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast. Welcome to episode number 34. And this one is going to be about the relationship of Nazism and Zionism. Now, I'm sure putting those two words together in a video title is going to generate a lot more hits than most other topics because of the diametrically opposed nature to them. But is there also a hidden synthesis that is omitted from the history books? Or perhaps is in the history books, but they're not the books that are promoted. And that's the point of the book we'll be examining here on today's episode. For it is an academic work by a seemingly liberal professor. So we're not getting it from some alt-right source or anything crazy at all. We're getting it from a person who I'm assuming would probably be voting for Joe Biden in the upcoming election. But we'll sort all the caveats out in regards to the book once we begin. And I will say, with honesty, that looking into this topic gave me a lot more sympathy for certain Zionist Jews. And it's a very strange situation. And it's just unfortunate all around. But in particular for German Jews, being between a rock and a hard place during this time of the Nazi occupation in 1933 to 1945, and then on the flip side of the coin, the most reprehensible behavior I found coming from the Zionist came from the Anglo-American side of the coin. Not all of them, but certain figures and their viewpoints were very concerning. But having said that, I also do not view World War II as some sort of Manichaean dualism of good versus evil. I think there's also another dialectic at play where they both synthesize on the rejection of the Catholic solution to all the problems that they were battling over and trying to impose their solution to these problems, which resulted in World War II and a giant chaotic destruction. And I would say that these powers and the ones that arose out of this chaos were and are just various scales on the Ouroboros serpent of revolution against old world Christendom. And I have a lot more chaos to sort through in regards to World War II but the Zionist Nazi dialectic is a big piece to understanding the lead-up to this horrible event. Greetings and welcome to episode number 34. And as we've had to deal with in previous episodes, I have the AC going. I think I've dampened the sound a little bit more. But nonetheless, it is lurking in the background. But if you want a podcast episode or future episodes, then you have to deal with it for now until it gets a little bit colder where I am. Because otherwise my computers might overheat and their life will be shortened and I can't afford to buy new ones. At least not at the moment. So, AC disclaimer aside, let's talk about today's episode and the topic of Zionism. Now, admittedly, I was pretty ignorant on all of the various intricacies 
of Zionism. And there's still a lot more I would need to learn and am looking into at this moment. But it's just a lot more complex than I had probably originally uh, intuitively thought. And also, I think that in the alt media, there's sort of this tendency to overly polemicize the Israeli state in ways that it perhaps might not deserve. Not to say that there isn't deserving criticism to be had, but rather in a way that is a bit too broad in scope. Whereas the dialectic of that is the kind of Christian Zionism where Israel can do no wrong and it's a great beacon of light and hope to the world, then obviously that is problematic as well and... Obviously, that would apply as well to particular Jews who would view the Zionist state in that same godly light. So, despite the many complexities that I'm not really as well versed on or have examined to the extent that I should, there is an element that I have done enough research on to give some insights that might be very relevant and useful and unknown to a lot of people on whatever side of the coin they fall on in regards to the Israeli state. Be it overt praising, overt polemicizing, or any various shades of gray in between. And on some level, I would probably be a little bit more on the in-between, but at the same time, leaning more towards the side of critique. However, there are certainly some sympathies to be had and things that I had to sort of reconfigure my mindset on it, especially in regards to this particular topic we'll be talking about, which is the relationship of Zionism and Nazism and the anti-Semitism issues that go with it. And the book that we will be sourcing from or focusing on today is called Zionism and Anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany by the author... Francis R. Nicosia. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, but it is interesting that this particular author is from my home state. And unfortunately, this is not a cheap book, and luckily I was able to get a used copy at a decent price. Now, this book was excellent in providing many different sources and documents and all these different things that are presenting historical facts and policies... However, I would say that the interpretation and narrative given attached to them has some really bizarre contradictions built into it. And setting aside any contradictions, I would say that it's very well done, and I would give props to the author for that, and would recommend it to anybody to read. Now let's talk about what these contradictions might be. And I think that instead of me going on some long tangent about what they are, I would encourage people to read the review on Amazon by a user named Germinal, G-E-R-M-I-N-A-L, and his, I'm assuming it's a he, uh, his review on this book, because I wholeheartedly agree with it, and he pretty much expressed it more eloquently and succinctly than I could, but I will give a few extracts from the review and summarize some of the issues that are mentioned. So reading a quick extract from this review, it says that, in a nutshell, Nicosia has approached a sensitive and controversial subject, the relationship between Zionists and the Nazis, 
and not handle the analysis of the evidence he presents terribly well. The strength of this book is the information and the weakness is the analytical treatment of that information lending to interpretations and conclusions which are unconvincing and which conflict with the evidence presented. And so, for example, Nicosia presents evidence aplenty for mutual collaboration between Zionists and Nazis, but wants to conclude that there wasn't any collaboration. The book is littered with poor argumentation, illogical positions, non-sequiturs, and blatant contradictions. I might have been a little more charitable in that, but I pretty much agree with that. And basically, the book shows that historically, Zionism and Nazism have the roots in 19th century nationalism, movements which were very anti-Catholic. And another useful extract from this review is that it's true enough that the Nazis were not Zionists in that they were supportive of the ultimate ideal as being this awesome thing. It was more pragmatic. But Nicosia goes a step further when he insists that Zionist Jews were treated no better than non-Zionist Jews as individuals. And that's not the case. They were obviously given a lot more benefits and were allowed to promote all of their organizations and all these things that we'll discuss in this episode of the podcast. And I'd suggest you read the rest of the review if you can, but we'll summarize it here with what Mr. Germinal says at the very end, where he states, This is one of those strange history books where the author goes to war with his own evidence. Even after all my criticism, I'd still recommend it to anyone interested in Nazism, Zionism, or the Holocaust, but be a critical reader. So that I can wholeheartedly agree with and recommend. That is what you do when examining the complexities of this topic. So let's talk about the basic paradigm of how the Nazis and the Zionists were working together um, for the same ends, despite having very different reasons for it. So basically, try to keep this outline simple because we'll be expanding upon this as we go on, especially in the second hour. We have the Zionist movement that is a thing before the Nazis ever came to power in 1933. So this was building steam since the late 19th century. And in our Barwell's memoir series, we talked about how there was even some Zionist ideas floating around by Voltaire and D'Alembert uh, trying to work with Catherine the Great and Frederick the Great in order to try to get the Jews to Palestine. Now, this was all done by these Enlightenment philosophers to discredit Christianity. So it was their hatred of Catholicism, the old world, and all that stuff that was fueling this Zionism coming from them. Now, this didn't come to fruition back then, but it's just interesting that it was a primitive Zionism coming from these Masonic Enlightenment deists. And then so fast forward to the 19th century, that's when a lot of stuff starts becoming more popular, and before World War I, there was a lot of this going around. And the book basically demonstrates that a lot of the policies that the Nazis adopted to try to get the Jews out of their culture, out of Germany, and into Palestine, they were actually the Zionist policies that had been proposed, you know, decades earlier. So they actually adopted the Jewish policies on it to varying degrees. Now, the Nazis had the final say. They were the people in power. They wouldn't agree to certain things. But a lot of their methods for dealing with this plan of segregation actually came from the Zionists themselves. So three important things to remember here. 
The Nazis allowed Jewish organizations to function as long as they were Zionists. They would not allow any assimilationist groups to form. They were all suppressed, and that the Nazis would sit in on Zionist meetings and would go through the checklist to make sure everything was quote-unquote kosher, no pun intended, or maybe it was intended, I don't know. Um, and oftentimes it was, and the book actually provides a lot of favorable reports from SS officers and you know whoever's in the Reich observing these meetings, and they're saying, yep, all good, keep doing what you're doing, no issues. And part of this was promoting Hebrew culture, nationalism, teaching people Hebrew, and the Enlightenment was causing people to lose a lot of that stuff because it's assimilating them into, you know, Masonic deism, right? Or the secular society and everything that we believe in today in the West that predominates the culture. And in further irony, the Nazi powers didn't want pogroms to outbreak against the Jews, and this was seen as counterintuitive to the Zionist effort to emigrate them to Palestine. And there was a particularly bad pogrom that broke out, and the Nazi regime put Reinhard Heydrich in charge to ensure that pogroms wouldn't break out again and the immigration policies would keep working. Now, Heydrich is seen as one of the most sadistic, anti-Semitic Nazis that ever lived, and he's the one in charge of making sure that pogroms against the Jews don't happen. In fact, on page 116, there's a very interesting quote coming from Heydrich's direction on how the Gestapo were supposed to deal with individual acts of violence against the Jews, and this is what he said, quote, In my view, the Jewish question cannot be resolved by the use of violence, the mistreatment of individuals, or the destruction of personal property or other individual actions. So one of the most notoriously sadistic Nazis of all time was advocating for non-violent solutions to their policies on dealing with the Jews. And there's also an interesting example of a pogrom that happened in which Zionist Jews were arrested and then the Nazis worked to get them out of jail and this led to the centralization of Nazi power that part of that was intended to stop the pogroms from happening because individual police departments were engaging in violence. That's not exactly something you read in the history books, but nonetheless, this book documents it very well. And along with this promotion of Hebrew culture, albeit a very controlled one, they also had the Havara Transfer Agreement, which basically allowed Jews to go to Palestine, which at that time was under British control. So the British had a fee for these immigrants, and I think it was like a thousand pounds or something like that. So they had to provide that fee, and then this transfer agreement had something to do with getting German goods uh, exported, and there was something about the German economy that was having this sort of relationship there. And there were certain Jews that we'll get to, um, we talk about the other book we'll be going into later on, that were very uh, much in favor of the Havara transfer and said that most people didn't understand the actual logistics of it, that it was actually a benefit, but b because people looked at wealth as more like dollars and paper money. <laughs> They didn't understand it, and they would criticize it. That was one viewpoint. Uh, that was coming from a Mr. or Dr. Gustav Kreujenker. So you can read his views on the transfer, a vital question of the Zionist movement. Again, we'll get to that in another episode. And so this transfer agreement that dealt with the export of goods and 
allowing the Jews to retain some resources, even if they weren't the uh, exoteric uh, viewpoint of what resource and wealth was to most people, especially in the Anglo-American West and how they viewed it. You know, all about the Benjamins, right? Um, well, in conjunction with this, there was a big issue with this boycott of German goods coming from basically the Anglo-American establishment, and Jews in Germany were trying to explain to all these other international powers that this boycott against Germany was only hurting them, even though they were professing that they were trying to help the Jews in Germany through the boycott and getting them equal rights again and stuff like that. So it's interesting because this shows the uh, supremacy factor of Anglo-America, where they want to export their solution for problems of other nations that they don't live in and they don't even understand. Um, and they're going to tell them how to deal with the situation, right? So this is an instance of that stupid, delusional, liberal mindset that, oh, liberal democracy will fix everything in every other country, and we're going to show them how to not be racist and all these things, right? Again, I'm not saying that this is justifying Nazi Germany or anything like that. Of course not. But I'm saying that that typical or stereotypical American mindset of imposing liberal democracy on everybody else but calling it enlightenment and then it usually destroys things, that plays a factor in all of this from the viewpoint of the German Jews and particularly the Zionist ones. And the last point is that there was a training program to try to teach German Jews uh, how to farm and you know basically learn worker skills uh, so when they got to Palestine they could work the land, they can work in factories, they had a job or they had skills that they could offer. And so these were called the occupational retraining camps. Now obviously the ideas of Jews being in camps under Nazi dominion is going to conjure up certain images in people's heads, but these retraining camps were all operating before the war and the book provides you a lot of pictures of people working in them. And one thing that's very interesting is all the people in these camps look very happy. They look very well fed. They're, you know, hanging out with farm animals. It actually looks like a pretty sweet life in a lot of ways. Um, so it's pretty interesting to look at that in contrast of what happened when the war broke out and when all of the ugliness really reared its head in terms of, you know, being involved in camps, right, and labor. So the tragedy of that and the fate of a very different version of camps in one sense to another, and again, I'm trying to take a middle ground here with extreme propaganda um, and some of the weird stuff with, like, swimming pools and, you know, Nazi officers playing football or soccer for us Americans with Jews and British POWs and a lot of things that really contrast what we see in Hollywood about, you know, World War II. Um, setting aside any of that stuff, nonetheless, it's a really sad scenario from it going to the camps that you see uh, in these retraining to the idea of being in a forced labor camp, right? And so my point is that the war was really the primary factor in changing and shifting the gears with all of this to a very different viewpoint on the situations and leading to a lot of the atrocities, um, even if people are going to debate to what extent those are. I'm not touching upon that here. I'm just saying 
that look to the war and whatever parties are accountable for escalating that as the real tragedy in all of this, I would say. And again, I'm not trying to say that the Jews in Germany during this time was some gravy wonderland. There's a big historical lie around it. I'm just saying that this is an instance that does not fit with the official Manichaean dualism of Axis versus Allies during this time. That's my point. So those three things are the fundamental themes or focuses that run throughout the entire book. We have, again, the exporting Hebrew nationalism and Zionism to Palestine and allowing that to be promoted under, you know, restrictions, of course, but that was favorable, that was official Nazi policy to get those things in motion and get those things happening. And the vehicle for that uh, most often was the Havara Transfer Agreement. There was interesting illegal immigration past British authorities in which a primitive Mossad and Nazis worked together to smuggle Jews into Palestine. That's a whole other strange uh, collaboration that perhaps goes unnoticed in the history books. But setting that aside, we have that transfer agreement and the issues surrounding the boycott that relate to it. And then you have the retraining camps, right? So Zionism ho for both the Nazis and the Zionist Jews and Havara transfer and trying to get the international powers to not boycott Germany and retraining them in these camps for skills and farming and factory work and things like that so that they had something that they could do and contribute once they were in Palestine. Those are the central themes to all of this. And if you were a group opposing those things, then you were going to get into trouble. So that's really the foundational stuff you need to always remember uh, that transcend all the complexities here. Um, these were the key issues at hands from the uh, German Jews and Nazis side of the coin. So let's extrapolate into the greater backdrop of the time in Europe and the West and how it relates to all of this. So let's talk about the events that led up to bring about these issues. What's really happened is that the Enlightenment has liberated all of the Jews, but they have assimilated into the Enlightenment principles. So, in essence, they're just adopting some sort of pagan cosmology, theology, philosophy, or whatever, and they are all still rebelling against the old world Catholic regime, right? So even if you have certain Enlightenment factions and figures that didn't like the Jews, people like Voltaire didn't really have great things to say about them. And obviously there's a lot of that going on in the Protestant cultures as well, setting aside any of the Catholic issues involving Judaism. But the Enlightenment folk realized that if they wanted to offer equality to everybody else, then they had to include Judaism into that emancipation. But ironically, with all of that equality going on for every other group, it was not equality for the Catholic Church. That was the one conundrum where it's any religion but Catholicism, and that's essentially at the heart of the spirit of America and its founding, I would argue. So that's essentially what happened. We have this giant emancipation going across Europe of which Napoleon was probably the greatest figure to spearhead this movement. However, the understanding was that the Jews and their 
usury and all of these other things that were attached to the negative stereotypes, whether warranted or not. Well, to get rid of that, they would emancipate them and assimilate them, but into the Enlightenment ideals, right? So if you have Jews converting to Catholicism, that is seen as an assimilation to the more Zionist-type Jews who want to stay exclusive and separate. But also, Jews assimilating into the Enlightenment ideals and having that sort of pagan lifestyle or mindset, then that's just as bad. Or perhaps the Catholic version is worse. I don't know. It depends on who you ask, I suppose. But nonetheless, it's all viewed as the same in regards to assimilation. It's actually viewed by many Jewish authors as a genocide. We've talked about this before. I'm not saying they all view it this way, but there is a culture of conversion or actual killing as being both equal in genocide, which is obviously absurd. But then you wonder why there's an agenda to equilibrate the Holocaust and the Nazi persecution of Jews with Catholic anti-Semitism and conversion. From that mindset of what constitutes said genocide, those would be equal and the same, but obviously they're not, and that, again, is an absurd position. So there's sort of this bipolar viewpoint of Nappy, Napoleon. We'll call him Nappy, because my old high school modern European history teacher called him that, and that's what I'm used to, so we're going to go with it. So Mr. Nappy is trying to bring about this assimilation into the Enlightenment, and the 19th century is the result of that liberation. And you have a certain faction of Jews who see the problem with that, and they view assimilation as a dead end. It's going to lead to destruction and suffering and hardship. And some Zionists will call this the diaspora mindset, where it's fomenting a victim culture, where Zionism is about seizing your own destiny and taking accountability and responsibility. And it's interesting that it's very similar, in a way, to Malcolm X and what he was promoting. Segregation and self-empowerment, and that these different ethnic groups and communities will solve their own problems. They don't need someone else to step in and solve them for it. They don't need no white privilege to help, right? Or in this case, they don't need no goy privilege, because during this time, the Jewish power was not nearly as powerful as it is today. Um, so, you know, take that basic paradigm and then apply it to the Zionist mindset, and then you can reverse that and apply it to the Aryan mindset, where it's basically the same ethnostate, nationalist-type principles and segregation, but each culture is sort of exalting itself as the pinnacle, and then they all kind of compete with each other. So that's really the right-wing side of the Darwinist views that kind of mix in with some of the religious backgrounds and cultural backgrounds. So, point being, you have assimilationist Judaism, and that is much more represented in the Anglo-American sphere, whereas in the German sphere, they're more of a minority, and the Zionists really made a push to try to weed them out and actually use the Nazis to help do that in order to prop up Zionism as the only solution to this issue. Now, I'm not saying that the Nazis and the Zionists were bestie friends, but this common pragmatic goal led to a lot of very bizarre circumstances. And if you want to put an archetype to it, you could say this is a Sadducees versus Pharisees battle, with the Catholic Church being in the middle and both the Sadducees and the Pharisees 
hate the Church of Christ, whether it's 33 AD or 1933 AD. And both of these factions during the time promoted the Dark Ages, Black Legend propaganda against Spain and all the evils of the Catholic Church and their rabid anti-Semitism, right? That's the typical propaganda that synthesizes both of these competing factions that could sometimes be very nasty to each other, and that's what we'll get into as we go through this. And I would argue you can see this parallel within Protestantism and Freemasonry, right? Freemasonry is more secular and promoting the Enlightenment, and that's what the assimilationist Jews were all attached to. And then you have some Protestant factions that are all about being in fear of paganism and idolatry and things of that nature and wanting nothing to do with any pagan immorality, right? But can there be a pharisaical approach to that? And then oftentimes that paganism gets projected onto the Catholic Church, which is similar to how the Jews would view it. So there is a sort of Judaizing when it comes to attacking the Catholic Church from a lot of these Protestant perspectives. Even ones that were vehemently anti-Semitic, like Martin Luther, there's still that equating of the Roman Catholic Church being just as evil as the Jews, or the same, right? Like the Nazis were viewing them. So isn't that interesting how these patterns just sort of evolve and morph into different versions of them, but they're run on similar foundational things and enmity, nothing new under the sun. And of course, not saying that that elitist mindset can't happen in Catholicism, but I think the dialectic is a lot more pronounced in Protestantism because Masonry is what grew out of that as a reaction, where I would argue that a lot of these Marxist ideas, perhaps, or whatever, grew out of a reaction to a pharisaical mindset, or people like Spinoza, whom we know Blavatsky and all of these Masons and Theosophists are enamored with, and we've talked about all of that in occult science. Now you can also find a Sadducees-Pharisees battle within Catholicism sometimes, where you have elitism battling against the assimilationist types that you could probably peg to the Pelosi's and Bidens of the world. And then there's people in the middle who are able to navigate those polarities and call out the bad behavior on both of those sides, but also have an understanding of why they take the positions they do. And I think that that's really important here. You have to have an understanding of the situations and backgrounds of these people. For example, the Zionist Jews in Germany. It doesn't mean you can't criticize things. It doesn't mean there's not issues to be had. But they are still people. And there are things that lead to the situations that they were in. And it was a very bad one where they were in between a rock and a hard place. Not just the Zionists, but any Jews in Germany. But nonetheless... The problem is what they're all universally rejecting as their synthesis, which is the Catholic solution to ordering out these issues. And ironically, very similar to the Jews, the position of the Catholics in Nazi Germany was in between a rock and a hard place, and there was a lot of persecution of them just the same, and of which the Nazis pretty much purged when it assassinated the leader Engelbert Dolphus, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but he was associated with the ideals of uh, groups like the Christian Social Party and the more Catholic solution to these problems. So they all rejected that and maybe perhaps to their detriment and 
I would argue, leading to the chaos of World War II. But, again, the point is that these Jews rebelling against this Pharisee's exclusive caste, or segregational approach, well, their assimilation, again, was into the Enlightenment, not Catholicism, generally speaking, or perhaps becoming Protestants. Someone like Benjamin Disraeli probably represents that. Um, but nonetheless, these are the basic factors at play here. Now, you also have the pagan enlightenment and how it affects Britain versus Germany, and there's a dialectic there, where the OG Protestant reforming so-called nations are also battling each other on some level, Axis versus Allies, or at least the nations spearheading those groups. And as with this dialectic, you also see that within Judaism, where you have Jewish Zionists on the Anglo side or the Anglo-American side versus the German Zionists. And even between those factions, there's splits. And then sometimes there's people that can work with both of them and are trying to harmonize them. So there's so many different factions at play that are all battling here. Um, but for this same broad ideal, and also rejecting the same broad ideal of the old world Catholic Empire. Those are the two key synthesis points. So, there's a lot of dialectics that transcend differences between Greek and Jew, which is interesting because it shows that there is no difference other than in their own mindset, right? If you believe you're different and separate from the Goy, it's going to take on a unique manifestation. But the funny thing is, it takes on manifestations based upon these national cultures. So the Anglo-American side is a bit more universal and exporting democracy and liberalism and capitalism under their economic system, at least at this time. And then you have the dialectic of that with like the communist version so the capitalist-communist dialectic built into a universalism, right? A new universal religion. And then you have, on the other side here, more of an ethnostate or a nationalism. So there is a universal versus national split or polarity. And you kind of find that with the Anglosphere versus the uh, Central or Eastern European sphere. And there's even a bit of that, you could argue, within Eastern Catholicism and Western Catholicism, or Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, but it's a bit more contained. Now, it's not that these groups don't all intermingle in different nations, but what is the predominance of the culture and power, right? It's not that there weren't ethnostate nationalists in Britain, or that there weren't universal democracy folks in Germany, which I believe is reflected more in the 48ers, as they call them, with a lot of these German and Austrian folks coming to the Americas or like Australia. And even though they were part of like the pan-German nationalist movement, they were much more on the liberal democratic side and the human rights and all the stuff that we're accustomed to today with those kind of socialist leanings, I think. And so once they got in the Anglosphere, it would seem that they kind of assimilated to all of that. So... It's a mixing and matching of a bunch of different viewpoints that, again, their synthesis is that they reject the old world Catholicism and especially the Counter-Reformation and Baroque Habsburg culture and the Jesuitical Ultramontanes, all that stuff we talked about that Lola Montez and Ludwig were in fear of. Now, as far as the anti-Semitism that was going on that transcended different viewpoints and groups, whether they were pan-German pre-Nazi types, or Catholics, 
or just sort of a more right-wing Republican liberal, I guess, or, you know, Enlightenment person? Well, you had certain archetypes that were tied to that specific anti-Semitism. One of them was against Bolshevism and the Jewish influence in that movement, and that is really what the quote-unquote Jewish conspiracy that is international and tied to the Protocols of Zion, that is the archetype for that. Then there was the dialectic of that, where people like Marx were calling out Jewish capitalism and the idea that the God of the Jews is money. Those are Marx's words, not mine. And in my opinion, the successors of his tradition are kind of like those liberal communist type or uh, socialist type Jews who hate the state of Israel. Now, there's a weird overlap with some of the labor Zionism that might go with that. And like I said, it's kind of like taking the Rubik's Cube and just taking every different piece of an ideology and then it's like they all get mixed up in these different combinations. So there's always exceptions to rules. And that's what makes it so bizarre. And then, of course, when you get one of those exceptions wrong by doing a little bit of a generalization, everyone gets triggered and freaks out and... It's just looking for an excuse to try to uh, exalt themselves over somebody because they made a boo-boo and didn't classify their ideology in the correct way. I'm so triggered. Now, obviously, you want to make proper distinctions and get things right, but there are times to generalize, and that's when people try to pull their little pharisaical tricks and act like you're being a racist bigot hater, right? So setting that idiocracy aside, part of this anti-Semitism was associated with Anglo-American Protestant capitalism, and the liberalism, as far as laissez-faire economics went, was tied to the Manchester School, and this is what a lot of the Nazi, or pan-German, I should say, economists were uh, fighting against. And so basically, I would say that the German economics, if you strip out any other problems of their ideology, were probably a lot more sustainable and forward-thinking, but unfortunately, a lot of that was tied to the Aryan way and Darwinism. But nonetheless, this Jewish capitalist banker archetype, if you will, uh, at least before the Bolshevism became a thing, was, I would argue, represented by the Rothschilds or something like that, right? They're the archetype for this. The capitalist banking elite that are oppressing the little guy. And you saw these fingerprints upon some of the Austrian aristocracy and maybe getting a little too comfy with the Habsburgs. We've talked in the Rockstar Esoterica series and the Pike Templars and whatever else about Metternich being against Freemasonry and, you know, having some moves that were useful and helpful for Catholicism, but his Achilles heel was Rothschild banking money. Um, and then you have that perhaps in England, and then you have sort of a reaction to that, and I think that the Fabian Socialists or um, different groups associated with those circles, um, they were reacting to that. So if you read some of these early socialist types or the Fabians, um, such as from the Pearson's Review, that's a magazine that we were examining in the Pike Templar series. You know, they say a lot of true things about the nature of capitalism and the Rothschilds and things like that. They actually sound like a lot of those quotes that people will mine 
that are attached to the American founding fathers and being against banking and usury and, you know, people like Napoleon, right? There's sort of like that anti-big banking capitalism, you know, archetype. And that was going hand in hand with a lot of this anti-Semitism floating around that they were all attacking the same type of thing, but associating that with Judaism. And obviously Karl Marx was one of those people doing that, right? Um, so a lot of strange, funky things going on. Now, from the Catholic side, they are rejecting both the Jewish Bolsheviks or the Marxist types and the Jewish big banking types, the Rothschild types, but they're also rejecting the Goy counterparts to that with uh, British capitalism and liberal laissez-faire economics and also any of those uh, socialist democratic revolutions that we could probably associate with the quote-unquote left today, if you will. And they were also rejecting the pan-German Nazi types and Darwin. So the Catholic Church's synthesis is rejecting all of those things. But of course, all of those things were also rejecting the Catholic Church and the Jesuits' alternatives to all of these issues. Or people like Karl Luger, who we talked about in the Pike Templar series, and we'll probably do a podcast on him and, uh, you know, his quote-unquote anti-Semitism at some point in the future. But that's all embodied in the Christian Social Party stuff. So, those are the basic factors uh, as best I understand them. So let's move on. Now, one thing I wanted to mention, there is a sister book to this uh, Zionism and anti-Semitism book that we will do another podcast on. So similar to how we did the Age of Secrecy podcast and Kabbalah and Christendom, and then we counterparted that with the John D. podcast, we will counterpart this podcast with a book called 51 Documents, which ironically is by a self-professed Trotskyite, or I guess Marxist dude, named Lenny Brenner, who I think is still alive today. Now this book is excellent because it's 51 Documents, showing collaborations of different Zionists and their viewpoints in regards to the Nazis or even the Anglosphere and all these different things that have to do with the Zionist movement. And it's very, very interesting. Now, I am currently reading it. I'm not done, but I wanted to sum up some basic points of what that book demonstrates that will be very relevant to everything we'll go over in this book and the rest of the podcast. So, as we said, the International Jewish Conspiracy, so-called, was tied historically to the Jewish Bolsheviks archetype, and the main campaign of Nazi Germany was against this type of Judaism, right? The Marxist Bolshevik types. But you'll also find that promoted in the Anglo-American sphere. People like Nesta Webster, a British conspiracy theorist, and I believe for people like Henry Ford, that was kind of like their boogeyman, right? The international communist Marxist Jew. Um, that's the historical understanding, I believe, of the Protocols of Zion. And like I said, the German Zionists hated these folks. Now, some of this was fused into particular Zionist movements, like the Labor Zionists, and that was created by people like Moses Hess. And there was a sort of a Marxism built in, but he also had beef with Marx. And this is where, like, the Spinoza ideology comes in. But he was mixing this with all of the Darwinist racial theories and the ethnostate stuff. So he was against the assimilation. So as far as I understand, that's this movement in a nutshell where they have this sort of 
socialism and about the worker, but also Israel or the Zionist state will be the uh, beacon of light to promote this or something like that, right? It will be the ethnostate that will show everybody the way on how to run society based upon these evolutionary principles and racial competition, I guess. But regardless of anomalies like that, you had these works from people like Churchill who wrote regarding Zionism versus Bolshevism as a struggle for the soul of the Jewish people, whereas Zionism is the good path for the Jews and Bolshevism is the wicked one. And this particular article is very interesting because it differentiates between, in Churchill's mind at least, the quote-unquote good versus bad Jews, also nationalist Jews, international Jews, terrorist Jews, and the solutions to these problems and protecting them and the duties of them and basically Zionism as a home and alternative solution as opposed to the Bolshevism consuming the soul of the Jewish person. So, very strange, but in any case, Zionism is very similar to American freedom, right? Everybody in America agrees on the idea of freedom, but everybody has their own interpretation of that, and that leads to the self-devouring Ouroboros that is going to constantly fight for this freedom, but maybe there's a fundamental flaw, and the fruits keep producing all of these split polarities and all these problems. So is this similar to an agreement upon the Jewish state as being this amazing thing, but everybody's fighting for their version of it, and it creates a bunch of problems and chaos, some spill over internationally and perhaps influence other nations to intervene, and that would get into, you know, neocon wars, Middle East stuff after 9-11. You can go down that rabbit hole, but there's also other factions that might be suppressed that could be a lot more benign. Um, so, there's sort of a funky universal American freedom, and then there might be more of like a liberal Judaism or Sadducees archetype attached to that, and then there's the Zionist one that looks down upon that type of assimilation, and then there's the ones that don't have a problem being in that dual state of Israeli-American citizenship, and so there's all kinds of different viewpoints in between. But nonetheless, they are all going to be at odds with the Catholic Church's solutions to these problems, and will want to mold the modernist church to be weakened so it caters to their desires and needs rather than stand strong for its old world principles and dark ages philosophy, right? And we touched upon that distinction in our discussion with Didymus where he went over a lot of these different Jewish factions that is going to be a very helpful counterpart episode to this one as well. So go back and check that one out if you haven't already. And then there's also the strange figure of Vladimir Yabotinsky. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but this is what the current regime and its tradition is really tied to. This is the Netanyahu faction. So Benjamin Netanyahu's father, Benzion Netanyahu, the one who consulted on Cayman's Spanish Inquisition book and was thanked for his help, and basically was trying to illustrate that there is no Jewish conspiracy to infiltrate the church or try to, you know, subvert it in any way. We'll let you decide. But nonetheless, if you read this Yabotinsky's Iron Wall text, 
It's very concerning to say the least. This version of Zionism and how they view the Arabs and colonizing the area. And there's this Anglo-American supremacy built into it that has that sort of Protestant capitalist spirit as books like, I believe, Protestantism and Capitalism by Cohen demonstrate. I haven't read it, but I've heard of it before. And that's often been something that's just, you know, kind of associated with on many different levels. People might debate it, but nonetheless, that's kind of all intermingled here. And so the idea is that Zionism is either a moral movement or it's not. And to Yabotinsky, it is a moral movement. However, part of this moral movement is going to be to break down the Arabs and basically that the Arabs are going to continue to fight for their cause until they believe there is no hope left. So the idea is to break them down so they have no hope left because they are a lesser people. And he compares Protestants trying to convert Native Americans to their way of life, which is superior. But the natives have a built-in nationalism or, you know, a, a tie to their land, their blood and soil. And they're just going to naturally be fated to fight against the Protestant enlightening viewpoints of the British Empire. And so thus they are going to attack them and then the Protestants are justified in basically wiping them out or subduing them at least. And then once they are in a position where they have no more leverage, if we bring it back to the Zionist example, then the Arabs will have no other choice than to negotiate, but that is exactly what this guy wants. He wants to negotiate, but where they have the upper hand and they can basically make it seem like they're being diplomatic and give them equal rights and all this kind of stuff. But it's under the Israeli terms and they have all of the power in the world to dictate this compromise. So that's basically his plan. <laughs> and kind of look what happened. And it's interesting that it was all laid out in this work in 1923. So if you want to read that, pick up Brenner's book and go to page 32 on the Iron Wall, We in the Arabs. And of course, while he's praising the Protestant colonialism of the Americas, he says that the Spaniards version is the backwards one where they're plundering and they're being all evil. So here he is promoting black legend propaganda that we know has inherent actual racism built into it that we talked about in the COVID-1984 P2BP episode on racism. And this guy, Yabotinsky, was very much against German culture, Zionism, and was all about boycotting them, and we'll see how the boycott and the Havara transfer agreement were the central issues involved on the Germanist side of this iron wall, perhaps, so to speak, of uh, Anglo-Zionism and Germanic Zionism. Now, there's an interesting Russian connection where some of these Russian immigrants went to the Anglosphere, or, you know, Anglo-America, and that's where they had the freedom to promote viewpoints such as this. And of course, Britain being more in control of Palestine during this time, obviously that was where a lot of the power lied in regards to Zionism. And so there's this built-in dialectic or battle, like we said, with the German version and the Anglo version. And having said that, and we'll demonstrate when we get to this uh, sister episode uh, of Brenner's book, I have a lot more sympathy with a lot of the German Zionists than the Anglo ones, and you can probably see for obvious reasons 
after going through Yabotinsky's viewpoints and his suggestions on the morality of Zionism and how it's to displace the Arabs and it's kind of like too bad Arabs but we're superior and once you are completely broken down in your will we will give you some sort of emancipation but on our own terms right some sort of equal rights <laughs> but are they really equal is it just a big facade but the irony is that he tries to be upfront about it and say, yep, the Arabs won't give it up without a fight, so we basically have to impose our will. We don't care if it's the British bayonets that do it, or some third party in Baghdad, or Jewish bayonets. Whoever's going to subvert them, it's going to be a moral good, and then we'll give them some benefits and equality, if you will on some sort of national autonomy. So once I read that, that was very revealing. And to know that Benjamin Netanyahu's father was this guy's personal secretary, well, I think that explains a lot. And then the book also talks about a young Turk Zionist faction, which is very relative to what we talked about with that book, Young Turks in Opposition, where we have connections of Freemasonry in Britain and in the Ottoman Empire and then in Palestine. And then you bring in the crypto-Judaism, the Armenian genocide, a lot of weird stuff going on with all of that. Uh, but at the same time, there's a Young Turk alliance with the Axis powers, so there's a lot of weird stuff going on behind the scenes, despite this exoteric fighting and world wars and, you know, everything that goes with that. So, this is something I need to flesh out more, but this would be the next series I would work on after the Barwell memoir series is finished. But, you know, a lot of my time that I can devote to these things is going away, so uh, I'm not exactly sure when we'll get to that, but here's a little bit of a taste of what all that entails in this episode, and hopefully soon to come in this 51 Documents sister episode. And again, there's documents talking about the diaspora victim culture, where the evolved Jew is now the Zionist Jew who wants to succeed on his own ethnic merits and accountability. Like I said, this is like Malcolm X for Jews which in my opinion, uh, despite my disagreements with a lot of the fundamental things, is a lot more respectable than playing the victim and appealing to the protest culture that we see going on right now, which is anything but that in reality. Point being, don't be a hypocrite and say you love everybody and hate is the worst thing ever, and that's all you do is hate other people when they disagree with you. That's just completely hypocritical. Versus if somebody's up front, be like, yep, I don't like you, and, you know, I'm not afraid to let you know it, and I'm creating my own segregated state that's not going to allow you, at least they're honest about it. Would you rather have the guy coming at you with a baseball bat with anger in his eyes so you can at least GTFO right away? Or would you rather have the guy with the nice suit and flowers in the hand and the knife behind the back that might come unexpectedly at any time and at the worst moment where... You're defenseless. So, the Zionist consciousness on segregating and promoting that is much more evolved in this viewpoint. And this is where you get some very strange praise from particular Nazis on this great spiritual movement of the Zionists coming from people like Reinhard Heydrich, who is generally seen as the most demoniac Nazi of all time, right up there with Dr. Mengele and Heinrich Himmler. Speaking of which, let's move on to some of the Nazis' anti-Semitism and their different viewpoints on it, and go directly to that quote by Mr. Heydrich. I believe that's how you pronounce it. 
And this gem of a quote provided on page 119 is on Heydrich's descriptions of the German government's approach to Zionism, and he said of it in the following manner, quote, It, or Nazism, is in agreement with the great spiritual movement within Jewry itself, Zionism, whose position is based on the recognition of the unity of Jewry throughout the world and the rejection of all ideas of mixing in. So let's repeat that. We have the worst Nazi of all time, who is the most epic Jew hater of all time, according to, you know, the general archetype of who the worst Nazis were. And he said, quote, that the Nazis' ideology is in agreement with a great spiritual movement of Zionism and the Jews' attachment to it and trying to segregate and exporting that synthesized Jewish unity to Palestine. So that's very different than how you would normally uh, be taught on this time period, but, you know, that's why we're doing this here. And the book also illustrates that the number one issue that the Nazis had as their anti-Semitism was the Enlightenment's assimilation of Jews. They were mainly oppositional to the assimilationist Jews or the Bolshevik Jews. That was the basic historical, what do you call it, uh, context for their anti-Semitism. That was the focus of what they were combating. I'm not saying they didn't have beef with other types of people or the Zionist Jews or anything like that, but this was the focal point of their polemics, right? And that's the whole point about the international Jewish conspiracy, the protocols, the elders of Zion, stuff like that. So simply put, Hitler was kind of like an inversion of Nappy, right? Napoleon wanted to get rid of Judaism by assimilation into an Enlightenment Masonic deism to take care of the Talmudic ways of usury and, and things like that that they were always associated with during those times versus Hitler's ethnostate that allowed the promotion of Zionism and the Zionist ethnostate and basically Hebrew culture in general that was all allowed to be promoted in Nazi Germany but that was to be exported to Palestine and done so through various means but the Havara transfer agreement was the number one option that we'll get into extensively. So this is undoing everything that the Enlightenment and the Nappy regime did, and the Bolsheviks were like the poster child example of the Enlightenment assimilationist viewpoint gone wrong, right? That was the boogeyman in order to go to straight-up segregation. Now, from the Catholic viewpoint, the problem here is that this alternative solution to this Jewish problem, so-called, is just another materialistic solution, but it's dressed up with spirituality, right? So the Enlightenment had all of that pagan philosophy and that Masonic spirituality, if you will, that was attached to it, but it was basically a pragmatic redefining of terms that were convenient to appeal to the sinful nature of man, right? Uh, liberating the passion, stuff like that, and then to overthrow the church and be the new oligarchy and a very hypocritical one at that, uh, setting aside any of the actual sins of the Catholic regimes in contrast to the projected ones or the exaggerated ones or even the imaginary ones that were 
promoted as propaganda by all these Enlightenment philosophers taking over and the whole Whig Masonic, uh, you know, origin of all this. So now we have the same thing, but it's a spirituality being sprinkled upon some Darwinistic viewpoint of race and biological determinism. And that is also anti-Catholic, and so the Catholics are combating that dialectic. So they're just going to the opposite extreme of the assimilationists to extreme segregation. So that's the two pillars, right? So there's a right-wing enlightenment, you know, salvation through Promethean technology and science and man's gnosis. Uh, And then there's the left-wing version. But they can all agree on the Dark Ages propaganda against the Catholic Church... And promoting that and saying, we don't want Rome, right? Away from Rome, uh, everybody's got their own Kulturkampf in these uh, OG Protestant nations and culture that is evolving into different sort of Ouroboros serpents shedding its skin and, and you know, creating a new one in its place and it devours all these things uh, in the process of it. But the unifying devouring is always the same consistently against the old world Catholic Church and especially the counter-reformation Jesuitical regime Habsburg's Christian Social Party etc. Now one thing that the author Nicosia states is that it was a societal norm of the time to be an ethnostate segregationalist or nationalist. So don't find it surprising or unsettling that Jews were working pragmatically with the Nazis or succumbing to nationalism, right? They're, they're not morally equivalent. The Nazis' morality is not the morality of the Zionists. And, you know, you got to make a distinction there, right? So I would say, okay, fine. That's all well and good if you want to make those distinctions. But why is it that the modern-day academia and propaganda machine will not allow for such concessions on the Catholic Church? Because the Catholics are demonized for a supposed collaboration with Nazis and leading to the anti-Semitism of the Nazis, the Catholic Church is so often conflated as basically being equal with Nazism. And it's really ironic that this propaganda comes uh, in a heavy dose from Jewish powers and organizations. Now, there's some that are very honest and won't conflate those things and will write books to make distinctions but they're not the ones that tend to get the most press and oftentimes they'll be attacked by other jews right and so isn't this such an irony to put it nicely we won't say hypocrisy we won't be mean about it that the zionist jews were working way more closely with the nazis than the catholics ever did but it's still that same propaganda juggernaut coming from Jewish powers to conflate the Catholics with the Nazis when it was actually these Zionist Jews that were working way more closely with the Nazis, like I said, than any of the Catholics were, or the Catholic powers, right? I'm not talking about Catholics who were the Sadducees Catholics that were succumbing to, as Nicosia describes it, the societal norms of the day. If you're going to allow concessions for Jews working pragmatically with Nazis and be like, well, don't be unsettled by this, Well, you have to say the same thing about the Catholics, but nobody does that, do they? And furthermore, I would say that I'm not here to bash the German Zionists that are working with the Nazis. In fact, I think that a lot of their solutions to the problem, despite them not liking each other, were a lot more reasonable than the Anglo-American sphere and its behavior during that time. 
I know that's very controversial to say, but after having read this book, I mean, it just seems very obvious to me that these guys perhaps had a bit more respect and honor than the way that all of the Anglo-American Zionists behaved, not to mention the quote-unquote goy in the nations as well when they were involved in these issues. I'm saying that as a broad generalization. I am not making all these different distinctions because there's so much going on. But nonetheless, on the whole, I have more sympathy for the German Jews and some of these Zionists. Now, I would say that they did hijack things and make things very difficult for other Jews there. And there are some things that I would be very critical of. But like I said, on the whole, I have sympathy for their situation because they were really in between a rock and a hard place as were many Catholics during that time. So, all these things have to be viewed with an understanding of the people's situation in the context. But I would argue that the Anglo-liberal democratic sphere doesn't want to be honest about any of these issues and have any understanding for anyone else's positions, and they always want to have a moral superiority and looking back on history and judging it according to their current PC standards. And to me, that's a bunch of BS. Now, of course, I'm not married to this position. This is subject to change, but based on the information that I've got so far, that seems to be the case more often than not, in my opinion. So we'll end part one here, and we went over all the broad strokes and the backdrop, which is really important um, when you start looking at the more micro data, which we'll do in the second hour. So we'll get into all kinds of different viewpoints of the Nazis, how they viewed the quote-unquote Jewish conspiracy how that conspiracy stuff was tied into their views on Zionism. Some people were more extreme about it than others. We'll also talk about how some of these viewpoints overlapped into their views on Catholicism and having a hostility to that and a conspiracy theory against that, similar to what we talked about in the Aryan Noble Savage. We got into all the esoteric elements of it, but that's not really as much a faction of this book. But nonetheless, the same foundational Enlightenment principles that seem to always kind of be the synthesis of these wildly varying viewpoints and different dialectics in between are all at play here. And we will talk about the wildly varying viewpoints of all these different Zionists or Jewish factions that at sometimes work together in a seemingly international cohesive manner and then sometimes were vehemently at war with each other and even creating all kinds of crazy propaganda each other and slandering each other for this or that and even alleging conspiracy theories against other Zionists of working too much with the Goy or the Nazis or not enough with them or whatever it is. <laughs> I mean, it's just a crazy Zionist Ouroboros that's going on along with all the other Ouroboros serpents that are all devouring everything and like we said, perhaps leading up to the ugliness of World War II, where, again, as we've mentioned, perhaps the Christian Social Party's solution or the traditional Catholic viewpoints on all of these issues, if adhered to, would have alleviated a lot of suffering and perhaps even prevented World War II from happening. I know you can only speculate on that, but in retrospect, having the benefit of looking at it so far removed, I'd say there's a lot of evidence to support that understanding. To gain access to the second hour, head to www.rockstaresoterica.com and become a member to gain all access to all content 
at all times. Or to purchase individual episodes such as this one, head to schism206.podbean.com. <laughs>